0: Song of Solomon. Notes are coming. They got forgotten in my office. They're on their way though. Song of Solomon. Everybody's of age to listen to this today? 18 and older, right? It's about marriage, so you need to be of marriageable age. I've heard it said that the Jews did not allow a man to read uh, the Song of Solomon until he was 35. That might just be an old Jewish wives tale, but it is often mischaracterized, taken out of context, misused, twisted, so, Song of Solomon, the last of the wisdom and poetry books. In fact, one of the issues we're going to discuss is, is it wisdom or is it poetry? And these are combined together, right? This section called Wisdom and Poetry. While we're waiting on the notes, who can remember the wisdom books we've covered? What, what, what books are pure wisdom that we've covered? Proverbs, that's the easiest one. What else? Ecclesiastes, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and Job. Now, the, the tricky thing about Job is that a lot of it is written in poetic verse, but it's it's clearly a wisdom book. What's the book that has both poetry and wisdom mixed within each chapter? Psalms. Yeah, some Psalms are they're poetic, but they're, the idea is to convey wisdom. And many, many Psalms are about songs praising God. So we have both wisdom and poetry in the book of Psalms. And then Song of Solomon, we'll have to decide before we're done, or we'll have to think about it at least. Is it more about poetry or wisdom? So, handouts coming around, only one page. By the way, if you need any handouts from previous weeks, they'll be in the back by the sink there for a few more weeks. So, Song of Solomon, it's the last one in the wisdom and poetry section in our Bibles. If you had a Hebrew Bible and read Hebrew, Ecclesiastes would be the last one. It would be Song of Solomon, then Ecclesiastes, then Ecclesiastes. I'm not sure if that's because they're trying to track Solomon's life. So they put Ecclesiastes at the end, but that's their order. All right, handouts coming around. What, what are the other sections of the Old Testament that we've looked at already? It's quiz time. Name one, Michael Bolding. The law. The law is what? First five books. Is Genesis law? Well, it's not technically law as a genre, but the whole section is called the law. Why? Because from Exodus through Deuteronomy, four out of five books deal with law for Israel, the Mosaic law. So whatever a thing is mostly about is what it gets labeled as. And so Jesus says the law and the prophets. The first five books and then everything else is considered prophets. or The law and the prophets in the writings. Okay, there's law. What else? One more section we've looked at. History. Historical books. Now to the Jew, that's the former prophets. It wasn't about just recording history. It was actually prophesying what had already happened in Israel. Remember, prophets told what God was saying to them in the past, what God was saying to them at that moment, and what God was saying to them about the future. We think of prophecy as just future telling. But in those days, prophecy was preaching from God directly. So you might preach and point backwards. You might preach and point right there to the present day, or you might preach and point towards what God is going to do in the future. So the former prophets we call historical books. That's what, Frank? Historical books. Starting with Joshua, going all the way through Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, all those books are sort of the end, depending on where you want to put it chronologically or order of Scripture. And there's one more section we'll cover in the fall. It's a big one. What's that called? Prophets. Major prophets, minor prophets. So we'll cover that in September. Next week, though, we began Frank's class on spiritual disciplines. So y'all got to be here for that. Spiritual disciplines, 9 a.m. next Sunday. Frank's going to start with which spiritual discipline? Scripture. Scripture. Next week is scripture. What do you do in your personal life with regards to scripture? What do you do with that? And then he'll go on through the spiritual disciplines, prayer, and on down the line for a few weeks. And then in September... Lord willing, we'll start with the prophets and hopefully finish that by the end of the year. Well, let me pray and we'll talk about the Song of Solomon. Father, this morning we, we come to consider a celebration, celebration of marriage, something you created that's good, that's joyful, that should be praised, something that's really um, misused in our society today, abused, misunderstood, attacked. So many people want to destroy what you have built. And I pray that we would see how wonderful a marriage is, how wonderful the physical union of a man and a woman is. It's something you created, it's something you have done. And so we praise you for it. We praise you for your wisdom. And we praise you for your love. Help us to know this book better. In the name of Christ, amen. Let's look at some introductory material. In Hebrew, it's just the Song of Songs. And some English translations will have this title as the Song of Songs. It's the song, singular, of all the multiple songs that Solomon wrote. We looked at 1 Kings 4.32 last week. And there it says he wrote over, Solomon wrote over 3,000 proverbs and 1,005 songs. Of all the songs that he wrote, this is the song. This is the one that God inspired to be in Scripture. We also have one in the book of Psalms as well. But this is so unique, it was... It was set apart. It wasn't like a psalm, which is more of a praise to God. But this is a celebration of marriage. And it's one that's longer even than most psalms. In the Vulgate, the Latin, it got translated as canticum, canticorum, which means song of songs in Latin. But some, even in the old King James, will say canticles. Or y'all read some of the older Reformed guys like Jonathan Edwards, and he'll say something about the book of canticles. And you'll wonder what that is. Well, that just means song or songs in Latin. We just call it the Song of Solomon because that more identifies who wrote it and what's going on there. But either title is fine. Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. What's the genre? We're going to come to that in a bit. There's quite a few views on that. So we'll set that apart. I think you can probably figure it out already, but we'll set that aside. Author. What's one of the most challenge issues when it comes to each book of the Bible? Who wrote it? If you can undermine who wrote it, the liberals think, then you can throw it out of the Bible, right? Because we sort of have our views on, okay, an appointed king, a prophet. Many times the kings were prophetic as well. And an apostle. Those can write scripture. If we can disprove Paul wrote Ephesians, then we don't have to pay as much attention to it. And so this is often challenged. Many people don't think Solomon wrote it Well, it's easy for us. Verse 1, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. That's good enough for me. I think Solomon wrote it. Some would argue, well, the Hebrew there could be a song to Solomon. Or the song dedicated to Solomon. Maybe, but the most obvious meaning is Solomon wrote it. We don't have any other indication of who may have written it. So that puts us somewhere around the time of his reign, 970 to 931 B.C., There are some who think he wrote this before he became king in his first marriage as he's experiencing some of the feelings of love here with his first wife before he married all 300 and all 700 concubines, etc. This was what happened then. Some say he wrote it at that time. Others say he's reflecting back on it later. Either way, it's, it's a bit challenging for us, right? Because if this is his first wife, then what happened to him later that he would have so many? If he writes it later, looking back, is he repenting of all those wives that he's added? What's going on? It's not really answerable here in the text itself, though. So Solomon wrote it. What's the context? Well, the context is that he's, he's wooing and wedding this Shulamite shepherdess by King Solomon. Now, we often think that the, the, who's Solomon's first wife, if you know your historical books. first woman mentioned to marry Solomon is princess of Egypt, the princess of Egypt. But the problem is when we run into some of the children like Rehoboam, it's not the princess of Egypt who's the mother. So it's thought that he married someone before he became king, someone that was a little bit less politically arranged, and this would be maybe the most beautiful woman in a certain area the Shelemite shepherdess. Maybe her father owned many sheep, probably owned, you know, sheep back then would be a large business. You're a wealthy person if you own livestock. And sheep provided milk, they provided wool, they provided food. So that was the business to be in. And they were easy to raise on the hills or you just had grass growing. Yeah, he would have married before he became king. And then, because, you know, he would marry at a marriageable age. I don't recall exactly the age he was when he became king, but he would have been older at that point. You know, it would be strange for him to wait to become king to be married. But we see that the, the princess of Egypt is given to him as a wife, and that's probably politically motivated. And he builds her a whole house, and she's, she's sort of his trophy at how powerful and how wealthy he is. So she's probably a, a beautiful, maybe daughter of a wealthy businessman in his kingdom. So what's the theme? What's the book about us about romance. Now there are other views. We'll look at those later. There's a popular view in church history that it's talking about Christ and his church, or God and his love for mankind. But if we just do a literal understanding of the text, we're going to find that it's about romance. God's view of love and marriage. Why is it here then? The purpose tells us why it's here. Why is a book about God's view of love and marriage here? It's to celebrate it. It's that simple. And early Christians and medieval Christians and Reformation Christians had a problem with that. Because there's a lot of metaphorical language here. There's a lot of imagery. And the view was that the Christian life was more spiritual and not so much about the physical. And we needed to focus more on spiritual and set aside the physical. That started in about Augustine's day and it continued on through the ages, through the centuries. So you come to the Song of Solomon, and what do you do with it as an ancient theologian, pastor, reader of the Bible? Well, it's got to be something else. And hey, we've invented this thing called an allegorical interpretation. And when you have an allegorical interpretation, the words here don't actually mean what you think they do. Yeah, there's a literal understanding, but that's real basic. Who cares about that? We want to get to the greater understanding, the allegorical interpretation. And so that's where you get some names for Jesus out of this book, who's sort of the Rose of Sharon. Anybody heard of that, for a name of Jesus? Y'all seen in the posters with all the names of Jesus? The Rose of Sharon comes from this book, and there's no context that it's Jesus. The Lily of the Valleys. In fact, just look at one. I am the Rose of Sharon, the Lily of the Valleys. Both of those are considered by some people to be names for Jesus. But it's the, the Bride. The Bride of Solomon, the lover. So this is a literally interpreted book. It is, at its root, a book about romance, God's view of love and marriage. What kind of outline? Well, any kind of wisdom and poetic book is difficult to outline. And this one especially. I'll just suggest a couple. Actually, I have three in here, so you can choose. If you're going to study this book and start maybe considering teaching it, maybe you want to go through it with your spouse. Uh, these are the ways you could section it up. The first two chapters plus five verses in chapter 3 are about entering into love, going into the relationship of marriage. 3, 6 through 5, 1 is about being united in love. So it's about what, what is the wedding and marriage about? And then section 3 is struggling. There's some problems. 5, 2 through 8, 4. There's some problems that have to be dealt with in marriage. And section four, growing in love. That's the last ten verses. I kind of like MacArthur's study Bible outline. This is adopted by many here. Simply the first three chapters are about courtship. That's the leaving of Genesis 2.24. Then consummation, that's the cleaving. Coming together as husband and wife. And then celebration, the weaving together. There's nothing about problems in this outline, right? Not that MacArthur's trying to gloss over that, but... That just is assumed to be in the weaving. Let's look at Genesis two twenty four. This is the first place we see something about marriage in the Bible. So God's created man. He's created woman. And let's just pick up in 23. Because the first bit of love poetry is right here in Genesis. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So this is part of him, he says. And then God's word here says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. Old King James was cleave. And they shall become one flesh. That's the weaving there. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So there's the, the first little love poetry and marriage right there in the Bible. Now, of course, marriage is challenged today. And I've even heard Christians say, well, how can that be a wedding? There's no pastor there. There's no witnesses. I've actually heard, you know, a, a Christian once asked me, and they said, uh, "How do we defend that? That's a wedding, instead of just sort of a union. A, what do they call them these days? Where they're just united? What is it? Common law marriage or all these unions that they're coming up with? Well, God was the one who married them, and the the pastor just really in the in the wedding, the pastor is just sort of leading it and preaching at it today. That's a it's an adopted tradition, which is good, but. The pastor's not magically uniting them. God is doing that even today. God did it with Adam and Eve. So back to Solomon. Let's look at a few of these. Maybe you guys can pick up some poetry to read with your spouse. Starting just in chapter one. May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is like purified oil. Therefore the maidens love you. Draw me after you. Let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. So here we have what appears to be a woman speaking. She's speaking of the man who's, who's coming to marry her, who's pursuing her. And she mentions the king. We will rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. And she says, I am black but lovely. Probably just really dark is the idea. She's out in the field working with her dad's business. She's gotten a dark tan. Like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am swarthy, for the sun has burned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me caretaker of the vineyards, but I have not taken care of my own vineyard. Tell me, O oh, you whom my soul loves. O oh, what do you pasture your flock? And so she's speaking to her lover, Solomon, the one who is pursuing her. And then we have the man coming in here and 8. If you yourself do not know, most beautiful among women... Go forth on the trail of the flock, pasture your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. So there's a lot of visual language here. It's not hidden code for sexual stuff, it is using the imagery of that day to express love in poetic fashion. It's much the same as if somebody was to write a love poem today. You don't want to be boring. This isn't teaching the doctrine of love. Let me talk about the doctrine of love. Here's the three points. That's really boring to most women, right? Let me show you. Let's do a Bible study on all the passages on love in the Bible. That has its place. That has its place. But this is this is poetry. And so they're using meta- metaphors. They're using imagery. and They're using similes. There's just a lot of beauty in the poem itself. Uh, verse 12, While the king was at his table, my perfume gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a pouch of myrrh which lies all night between my breast, My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms and the vineyards of Engedi. So some people look at this and say, look, how can it be courtship? It sounds like they're already consummating the marriage. Well, that's not what the poem is saying. Look, she says it's like a pouch of myrrh that lies between my breasts. She's not saying the guy is already sleeping with her. This is not something we would even find in scripture. That's just silly talk. People like Mark Driscoll, Like to look at this, well, when he was famous, he liked to take this psalm and turn it into some sort of sexual manual for couples. And MacArthur has a four-part series on his blog that says, The Rape of the Song of Solomon. He uses a very harsh title because Driscoll took this and just said, look at all this stuff that's going on, look what you can do in marriage, and twisted it. He caught a lot of flack for it, rightly so. But of course, our twisted age really loved that and made him famous for it. That was before he himself took his own fall. Anybody heard of Mark Discoll? Good. It's good that most of you have, or have forgotten his name. All right, where were we? 15, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that are ruining the vineyards while our vineyards are in blossom. So sometimes pastors, you know, have a hard time preaching this, obviously, and I remember my seminary professor said he, when he was younger, or maybe in seminary, he heard a whole sermon on verse 15, and it was all about how if you don't Take care of problems before you get married. These little foxes will just spread out and destroy the vineyard. And so you've got to catch those little foxes. And this pastor turned a, a whole hour sermon from this verse into dealing with problems before marriage. Well, that is true, but that's not what the text says. What is it talking about? Well, it's talking about foxes. It's talking about vineyards. It's the beauty of what's going on. And it all plays into the beauty of marriage. My beloved is mine. I am his. He pastors his flock among the lilies. Until the cool of the day when the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of Bethar. There's a lot of place names. MacArthur Study Bible has a map and it'll show you where all these place names are in uh, the Song of Solomon. And so we're going to come here to chapter 3, the bride's troubled dream. She has this dream and she even talks often to the daughters of Jerusalem. These are the finest women in the land, the wealthy women, you might say, the noble women, those who live in Jerusalem, the young maidens, the ones who are eager to be married, the ones who are probably wishing that Solomon would choose them. And so she often speaks to them, the daughters of Jerusalem. She has this dream. Then there's, my, my Bible says in verse 6, Solomon's wedding day. What is this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all scented powders of the merchant? Behold, it is the traveling couch of Solomon, 60 mighty men around it, of the mighty men of Israel. So they're carrying him to the wedding. All of them are wielders of the sword, expert in war. So he's showing his power and might with all of these men, carrying his couch where he's on it. Each man has a sword at his side, guarding against the terrors of the night. King Solomon has made for himself a sedan chair from the timber of Lebanon. So the richest couch that he could be carried on. He made his posts of silver, its back of gold, and its seat of purple fabric, with its interior lovingly fitted out. By the daughters of Jerusalem, go forth, O daughters of Zion, and gaze on King Solomon with the crown with which his mother has crowned him, on the day of his wedding, on the day of his gladness of heart. So even Solomon speaks to these women. They're sort of like the audience, these daughters of Jerusalem. So that's the courtship. We have the wedding there at the end of chapter 3. And now we see the love expressed throughout the rest of it. Often he's talking about how beautiful she is. How beautiful you are, my, da- my darling. How beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats that, that have descended from Mount Gilead. Now this is the best one. Your teeth. Okay, guys, say this to your wife. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes, which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost her young. That doesn't mean you have you have multiple teeth growing up. It means your teeth are really white and clean. That's a good thing, right? We today, today, we sort of take it for granted. But back then, to have white, clean teeth, that would be rare. They didn't have dentistry. They didn't have toothpaste. Yeah, they had a kind of toothpaste, but it wouldn't whiten their teeth. And he's saying she's beautiful. Her teeth are white. And this just doesn't work too well in our context. But back then, this was like the best thing you could say to your wife. You know, this was... Great, this was beautiful. Your lips are like a scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with the rows of stones, on which are hung a thousand shields, all around the shields of the mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, which feed among the lilies. Until the cool of the day, when the shadows flee away, I will go on my way to the mountain of Myrrh and to the hill of Frankincense. So he goes on, four and five. Five really talks about My Bible says a torment of separation. Again, there's this issue where she wakes up. She can't find him. She goes out into the streets. The guardsmen aren't very kind. In verse 7, The watchmen who make the rounds in the city found me. They struck me and wounded me. The guardsmen of the walls took away my shawl from me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved as to what you will tell him, for I am lovesick. So newly newlyweds, she misses him. She goes out looking for him. Probably the guards thought she was a robber or a thief. You know, they they hit her. Oh, this is the queen. We better we better take her home. We're sorry. Some people think because of this language, it's not a real historical event. We'll come to that in a minute. So starting in, you know what? I got verse five in both of those. What is your, who's got the MacArthur Study Bible? And the intro section. Probably the consummation just be chapter four, right? Look at the intro to uh, the Song of Solomon and They'll have an outline there that I copied. I want to get this outline right here. Okay, so verse 1 of chapter 5 is included. I've come to my garden, my sister, my bride. I've gathered my myrrh along with my bassam. I've eaten my honeycomb, my honey. I've drunk my wine and my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and imbibe deeply, O lovers. So that's sort of, the I guess, the beginning of the wedding. A wedding would be a long period in ancient times in Israel. This wasn't a 30-minute a thing. This would go on for days, a week. All right, 5 through 8, celebration. The celebration, so 5-2, all the way through chapter 8, which is the end, is the celebration of marriage, the joys of it. We we saw she was looking for him. There's an issue. Chapter 6, mutual delight. She admires him. Chapter 7, they speak to one another, and then it finishes. Verse 14, hurry, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of Spices. So there's this desire to be with one another. They're in their honeymoon here, and marriage is wonderful. Now, if you want to get really fancy and look at the whole book, and I don't remember where I got this, but here's a here's an outline here of the book. Who knows what that's called? Not you, Frank, but that kind of structure. Chiasm. That's a chiasm because it looks like the, the outside of an X. In Greek, this is an X in English. In Greek, it's called a key. And so we can kind of see one side of it there. And there's a lot of these in the Bible where you take a line and then you find it near the end. So chapter 1, verse 2, take me away. At the end, come away. And you can sort of indent and follow these parallels all the way in. So some scholar has come up with this. He's read this so many times he can trace those out. And you can sort of draw links. Sometimes people see chiasms all over the Bible. I think this, there's a good case for this. I mean, the words are the same. Look, look at H up there, vineyards, show me. And then H down here, vines that we may gaze on you. So they're, they're parallel. And if you trace them to the middle, the middle is supposed to be the big point. And in the middle, you have this, into his garden, into my garden. So the idea is that they, they're consummating their love here. They're in the same house. They're together in the garden and then back out to the end. It's interesting. I don't know who came up with that, but I found it from my seminary notes. All right, let's look at the, the only key passage. There's a lot of good passages in this, but one person has called this the First Corinthians of the Old Testament here. First Corinthians 13. Put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as severe as sheol its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. If a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, it would be utterly despised. So this is not lust, this is not worldly love, this is true, genuine love that a husband or a wife have for one another. And it's saying that love is so strong, in a good way, it's so strong that nothing can quench it, nothing can put it out. Now, what's 1 Corinthians 13 about? It's a whole chapter about love. Not especially marital love, although it is applied that way, right? It's just Christian love. Christian love. Because Paul's saying, you have all these gifts and tongues and prophecy, and you think they're so great, but love is the most important thing as a Christian. Not this fake feelings and emotions that people have in the world, but real, genuine love, sacrificial love, where you care for one another. Certainly, that's the case in marriage, right? That's your closest. Neighbor, if you're to love your neighbor, that's your closest neighbor. If you're to love the brethren, that's your closest brethren or sister in Christ. What is it the counselor says there in seminary, Frank, Doctor Street? You heard that story where somebody comes into him and says, "I'm having a problem loving my wife," and he says to him, "Well, the Bible says to love your wife as Christ loves the church," and he says, "Well, she doesn't really feel like my wife," and he says, "Well, the Bible says love your neighbor." You're supposed to love your neighbor, even unbelievers. He says, well, I don't even know if she's a believer. And he says, well, look, Christ says love your enemy then, if she's your enemy. Regardless, right? The point is love. You've got to love. So 8, 6, and 7, marital love. 1 Corinthians 13, love, but it also applied to marriage. I had to take a quiz in seminary on 1 Corinthians 13. How do I love my wife? Go right down the checklist of all those words and what they mean. And then she had to grade me. Then I had to turn it in. I won't tell you how I did I like this quote from the MacArthur Study Bible. In contrast to the two distorted extremes of ascetic abstinence, this is the idea that developed in the church where you're never supposed to get married, and even if you are married, there's not supposed to be any sexual intimacy. And then lustful perversion, which is do whatever you want in the sexual realm. Do whatever you want according to the world. So in contrast to those two views, and often perversion is outside of marriage, of course, Solomon's ancient love song exalts the purity of marital affection and romance. It parallels and enhances other portions of Scripture which portray God's plan for marriage, including the beauty and sanctity of sexual intimacy between husband and wife. The song rightfully stands alongside other classic Scripture passages which expand on this theme. So these passages are more doctrinal or maybe proverbial in the case of Proverbs. And then here we have just a poem about the joy of marriage and the joy of sexual intimacy. It's not details about the intimacy, but it's pointing to that. It's showing that there's a consummation that happens in marriage physically, and that's a good thing. That's to be rejoiced. Now, in the Catholic viewpoint, there's only one reason for sexual intimacy in marriage. Who knows what that is? What is it? Procreation. That's it. It's for procreation. There's no other benefits. Now the Bible lists three or four other benefits, which we won't go into now because this isn't a marriage counseling class. But these verses and this whole poem right here teaches us otherwise. Where's procreation in this? It probably happened later, but it doesn't happen in the poem itself, right? So what do you do with this if you're in the Middle Ages as the Catholic Church? And you follow Augustine's view that marriage is only, or sexual intimacy in marriage is only for procreation. Well, you just interpret it as Christ and the church, or God and his people. Let's consider some of these passages here. Genesis 2.24, we just looked at uh, Psalm 45. Some of these will go quickly. We won't turn to everyone, but look at Psalm 45. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. So the title in my Bible is a song celebrating the king's marriage. And it's not written by Solomon. It's written by the sons of Korah. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. And he goes on to really just talk about the, the king's marriage. We don't even know which king this is. It could be any king. Probably not Solomon. Probably later than that. Proverbs 5. We looked at that a few weeks ago. That's one that says, Drink from your own springs. Don't go out looking for water in the streets. Go back to the wife of your youth. 1 Corinthians 7, the Corinthian church, I think, wrote to Paul and said, is this even good? Is sexual intimacy in marriage even good? Or should we refrain from that? And he writes back and says, well, let's just read it. I want you to take my word for it. Let's just read it. There's a problem even today in the church, and there was a problem back then. People are twisting the doctrines of Scripture both ways. So now concerning the things about which he wrote, and I believe this next Part of the sentence is what they wrote to him. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. So First Corinthians is all about the problems that they wrote to him about or that he's heard about. And they think, or somebody's taught them that it's good for a man not to touch a woman, meaning his his wife. And so here's what he says. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourself to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self control. So, in addition to procreation, In addition to the Song of Solomon, just speaking of the physical intimacy and benefits there, there's also this tempting issue from Satan. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. So some are not called to be married, and some are. And if you're called to be married, then you should be with your spouse, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. And so there was an issue there. Now again, this is doctrine. This is saying what you should and shouldn't do and why. Song of Solomon is the poetic celebration. Of course thirteen, chapter thirteen is about love. Ephesians 5, 18 through thirty-three is, is how the marriage relationship works in general. Submission and, and a man loving his wife, a wife submitting to her husband. Colossians three, similar. First Peter three, one through seven. It's kind of an overview of marriage here in the Bible. So let's look at 1 Peter 3. In the same way, you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. So even if a husband is being disobedient to the word, he says he's a Christian, but he's sinning, or he's not even a Christian, the wife might win over their husband to Christ just through constantly... Uh, being submissive and loving and kind. And of course, he's hearing the gospel somewhere in there. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. And he goes on to talk about internal. Your heart is more important than what you put on, what you wear. And verse 5. For in this way in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God and used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husband, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. And he goes on. You husbands, in the same way, live with your own wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. So again, doctrine, how the relationship overall is supposed to work. Not so much the physical aspect, but it is, of course, just a general overview of marriage. And then lastly, we'll look at Hebrews 13, which is sort of the other side of what we're seeing in Song of Solomon. Hebrews 13.4, marriage is to be held in honor among all. So marriage is a good thing. Sometimes Christians today say marriage is a bad thing. And there's even a big movement sort of in uh, young evangelicals and reformed people that say, hey, we're single. We've been single for so long. Nobody's talking to us. The church needs to sort of spend a lot more time on singleness than in the past. And there's all these books and blog posts and articles and it's sort of like, hey, you married people. Quit thinking you're all special. We need some more things on singleness. Well, there, there is preaching on singleness. There is that in the Bible. And there needs to be more of that, of course. But the Bible talks a lot about marriage. And, and marriage is generally the way people will go, the way people will end up in life, whether it's a believer or an unbeliever. And so the marriage is to be held in honor among all. It's a good thing. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Fornicators usually mean sex before marriage with somebody that's not your wife. Of course, you're not married yet. And adulterers would be sex outside of the marriage bed. Both of these things God will judge. So that's the other side of song, Song of Solomon. Within the marriage, it's great. It's wonderful. There might be problems that you have to work through, but outside of marriage, that's sinful. Even inside of marriage, there can be Wrong things brought into the relationship. Sinful things brought into intimacy. And so the marriage bed is to be held in honor. It's to be undefiled, not full of sin. What's a good commentary on this? Uh, probably the best and easiest to read is Cars, The Song of Solomon in the Tyndale Old Testament series. It's a small, the Tyndale Old Testament are small little booklets. They do give some depth. But it's usually in a summary fashion. It's not going to give you every Hebrew word and even anything in Hebrew. It's just going to summarize. And I think Carr was one of the first, at least in the last century, one of the first to take this as a literal poem on marriage. Not Christ in the church. So that brings us to the genre. What is this? Is it a book about wisdom? We've looked at wisdom books, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Wisdom shows you how wise God was in making such things, and you ought to learn a lesson from that. Proverbs is probably the best example, but also Job and Ecclesiastes. Drama. Is this drama? Is, is this play? Players in a play here? Actors in a play? Is there two actors, Solomon, the king, and somebody else? Or maybe even a third, the, the daughters of Jerusalem? What's the problem with that? probably wouldn't know this, but who brought drama to the Hebrew people? Did they come up with drama? Did they have plays in Jesus' day? They did, but not in not in Jerusalem. Who are the playwrights? Who are the ones who sort of I don't know if they invented it, but at least they made it popular in the Western world? The Greeks. The Greeks had plays. And they would put on a mask and they would dress up as women, uh, men would, and they would, you know, sometimes have amoral plays, you know, cussing and different acts of immorality being portrayed. And so when the Jews saw that, they thought that that was blasphemous. First, that you would pretend to be somebody else in the play. And secondly, that all of these entertaining things of the world would happen. That's not what you were supposed to do. So there wasn't any drama in Solomon's day. There wasn't any drama before the Greeks brought it there. And Jesus doesn't remark on it. You know, there can be, I think, godly things portrayed. But back then... That was mostly worldly things. The Greeks were fascinated with worldly things, and that's what they portrayed in drama. So this isn't drama genre because that didn't exist in Israel at the time. So what are we left with? It's love poetry. We don't have to force it to be something else. Is there wisdom there? Yeah, maybe you could pull out some wisdom, but it doesn't read like Proverbs. Read Proverbs, read a chapter out of the Song of Solomon. Drastic difference figures of speech illustrations metaphors all these wonderful things there's a few of that in proverbs but it's teaching how to live wisely in the world this song of songs is teaching how wonderful marriage is okay the big question and you've already heard some of my views on this how do we interpret it how are we supposed to interpret it is this allegorical meaning that God never intended it to be about marriage and it's really about God and his people or what the reformers would do, would say Christ and the church. So the Jews would say by Jesus' day, they would think, well, this is more about God and his people. And the Christians, early Christians would say, no, no, this is about Christ and his church. So the bride, that sounds a lot like Christ, but then sometimes it sounds like the church. And so you'll hear good and godly men even today preaching the Song of Solomon as Christ and his church. And they will say, look at the description of Christ here. I don't know how they do it with the teeth and the goats and all that. But somehow they do and they, and they allegorically interpret it. There's even a new commentary that came out a few years ago. A professor out of Southern Seminary. And he's trying to make the case that it should be interpreted allegorically. Typological is similar. It says, okay, fine, it was about a real man and woman. But it was just pointing to Christ and the church. It was a type pointing to the future Christ and the church. We already dealt with drama. There's a lot of people who think there are three characters. The daughters of Jerusalem keep coming up so much that they say that's another character. And the three characters really comes into view because you have the soon-to-be wife and the women of Jerusalem. So this feminist liberals really like the three-character drama view. Because it says, look at how much the women get to say and how much the women are portrayed. And there's two out of the three characters are women. Historical love song. That's going to be my view, I'll just tell you. I think it's a love song, but I think different than G. G over here is that it's just Solomon sat down to write a love song. It didn't actually have to have happened. Or he took many of his songs and put them together into one. Or maybe Solomon wrote many love songs and somebody later put them together into one. That's G. C is this actually happened and Solomon's writing about it in a poetic fashion. I would take that. I think that's the literal understanding. That's the most obvious. It was the Song of Songs by Solomon. And then he names the Shulamite shepherdess. And then he names all of these places, these mountains, these valleys, these cities, Tower of David, the different types of animals and fauna and flora of Israel. It's meant to be taken as a real poetic love song. Cultic, it means religious. I don't even know who would say that, but I guess it's here because it's on the list from my seminary notes. This means people would use this song when they go up to worship God. They would sing it. The Jews do, I think, sing this on Passover. But again, they take it as God and his people being represented in the book. six uh, talks about love is stronger than death. It's stronger than Sheol. So that led somebody out there to think, well, this must be about a funeral. Talk about turning the joys of marriage into a funeral. Like Whoever came up with that must have had a really rough marriage or something. A few marriages, I don't know. Wedding feast. Well, there is some feasting and, and joy at the wedding but I don't think that's the whole book. And then, of course, G is a composition of many love songs or Solomon just writing about love in general. It's not meant to be taken historically. So any thoughts, questions on this or the book itself? Well, you just said a good biblical hermeneutic. Right there, yeah. That's the key. That's the key to a lot of the Bible. Right? I mean, how do you... some Some things are so obvious. You'd have to be a complete unbeliever to not believe it, but... Others, they're not so easy, and so people come up with bad hermeneutics. It all goes back to hermeneutics. As as Forrest said, there's been this view in Christianity for a long time to separate the physical from the spiritual. Because the world is full of sin, because we have sin, then we must separate that. And the Bible does call us to think on heavenly things, but it never says outright that our bodies are not worth anything, that they're worthless, right? We're sinners, soul and body. And this view that our, that our soul is perfect and our body evil leads to this idea that we're going to sit in heaven with our souls forever on a cloud playing harps. So it's not only the view on earth that they take, but also the view of heaven is a sort of bodiless, no resurrection, no new heavens, new earth. I think they had to deal with this in an allegorical way. That's the most common one, by the way. Hey, up until mid-1900s, most conservative Christians took A as the approach. Tommy Nelson did a whole series on it. I don't know that I'd preach like he did all the way through the book, but he also did a DVD series, and I've heard good things about it. Even though we were at church there for a few years, we never we never got exposed to it, but I've heard it's good stuff. Anybody seen Tommy Nelson's series? You like it, Greg? Good stuff? Yeah. But he takes it literally. Yeah. Yeah, that's a twist on the three character one I forgot to mention where there's the woman, the shepherdess, and then... She's being pursued by the king. But then there's this other man mentioned here that she loves. And he's just another average shepherd boy that she wants to marry. But Solomon's chasing her to take her for himself. And she doesn't want to marry him. And he eventually he, you know, he, he captures her and then she escapes. And I guess that's where the guards beat her. And then she finally gets back with the shepherd. It's a, it's a more of a feminist interpretation there to show the power of maybe the angry White king, I don't know. That's how it would be phrased today. But it's just sort of a power trip that Solomon's on. I think he wrote Song of Solomon, and then we have a large gap. And then he wrote Ecclesiastes at the very end of his life. So decades go by where he's in his sin. I don't think he's writing scripture. That would be silly. I don't think God would motivate Solomon to write scripture in his sin. But I think he repented in old age. And that's Ecclesiastes, probably right before he died. All right, did I answer all your questions? Do you want Frank's opinion on any of that? Hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. So guess what we're doing after Old Testament survey? Hermeneutics. Probably should have done it before, but hey, anytime's good, right? Some of you weren't here then, so it's good that we waited. Hermeneutics, that's key. How do we interpret these books? Old Testament, New Testament? It all comes back to the principles that the Bible teaches us on how to interpret. So in a year from now, we should be finishing up or have just finished hermeneutics, Lord willing. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for all of the Old Testament. Every bit of it is inspired. Every bit of it teaches us, even though we're under the New Covenant. It has so much to show us about you and about your relationship with mankind and about things like marriage and love. Help us to read it all, to love it. And help us, those of us who are married, to love our spouses like not only Christ loved the church, which is the greatest example, but like we see here in this Song of Songs. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be faithful in our marriages. In Jesus' name, amen.